0: Hey Serena. Hi. This is my friend Serena. We met back in 2013 when I was living in Papua New Guinea. When we started looking into what Biden's summit would mean for the region, I knew I wanted to give her a ring. Serena and I have spoken a lot about governance, democracy and development over the years, and her insights are always top-notch. From the Development Intelligence Lab, I'm Bridie Rice, and this is The Readout. In this series, we're taking you behind the scenes of our latest project on democracy. I'm asking different experts across government, academia, and practice one question. What will Biden's summit mean for the Indo-Pacific? This is episode two, A Pacific Perspective. Serena Sassingen is a Papua New Guinean leader, a lawyer by trade. She currently heads up Digicel Foundation and she was founder of The Voice, a Papua New Guinean youth movement. She's written an essay as part of this inquiry, which you can find in our online publication Develop. In other episodes of this series, you'll hear directly from authors and experts. But Serena was in a remote part of Papua New Guinea when we chatted, and the sound quality was a bit too rough to include in the podcast. So I've asked Madeline Flint, our producer here at the lab, to read a few extracts of Serena's essay as I take you through it. The essay kicks off with Serena's recollection of Papua New Guinea, hosting the APEC Summit in 2018.
1: Most people associate the 2018 APEC Summit in PNG with the government's Maserati purchasing saga. I remember it as the time when the tension between China and America was on public display. It started on the 16th of November 2018. I stood in my kitchen while President Xi Jinping and the Chinese delegation flew into Port Moresby ahead of the summit. This was the first time a Chinese president had visited PNG. President Xi Jinping had organized to arrive early to meet with Pacific leaders. His delegation dispersed to spend time cutting ribbons for infrastructure projects all over the country. Major centres, like Port Moresby, were decked out in Chinese flags. At the same time, we discovered that former US President Donald Trump would not attend the summit. He would instead send his deputy, Mike Pence. Vice President Pence chose to stay in a neighbouring country for the summit and commute daily on Air Force Two. The symbolism wasn't lost on us. When the time came for President Xi to deliver his address at the CEO summit, which was televised live around the country, we were listening. I was surprised to find his words resonated with the struggles countries like mine face in relation to compliance in a heavily regulated trade environment that made it very difficult for us to participate in the global economy. He presented a vision of cooperation that was inclusive. He was, dare I say it, inspiring. I recall this memory not because I'm particularly enamoured with one country over another, staunchly pro-democracy. But if Western countries are serious about affecting change, as the Summit for Democracy implies, the only way to do this is to truly understand the history, the systems, the values and culture that has shaped a country. Otherwise, words on democracy promotion become tokenistic and an external gender driven by Western countries and not driven from within. As Serena and I spoke about the summit,
0: about what democracy promotion means and how donors can support it, at every turn Serena kept coming back to this one central idea. Democracy comes from internal demand. What Serena pointed out so strongly to me was that the primary driver of democratic reform is domestic. And that challenges us as donors to not pretend like any single program that we fund is going to be do or die for the future of democracy in a place like PNG.
1: Back to Serena's essay on this. Here's what she had to say As countries across the Indo Pacific struggle with growing youth populations, stagnant economies brought on by COVID 19, and other social stresses, donors can capitalize on the momentum of the Summit for Democracy. Here are a few reflections on things to consider when focusing on democracy promotion within the region. Firstly, there must be a space for it to emerge internally and for the institutions of the state to be shaped by the context rather than by copy and paste models of foreign institutions. Donors should invest discreetly in people and organisations working towards accountable, transparent and effective democratic leadership.
0: The second point I want to draw your attention to is what Serena has to say
1: about education. Education will be fundamental, and if we get it right, transformational. The need for an educated nation transcends all other debates when it comes to the question of how best to generate democratic governance. The next point that Serena makes is that as donors,
0: we need to radically rethink the timeframes on governance and
1: democracy. But there's a bigger piece to this puzzle. We're in a moment of global ideology shifts, of governance shifts, of technology shifts, of economic shifts. As partners we're fundamentally misunderstanding the complexities in front of us if we think that one, two or even three-year program cycles will be sufficient in driving true change. A 10, 15 or even 20-year cycle could instead help us close the holes in the governance container creating lasting change and see much more value for money.
0: In Serena's essay, you can read some great insights she has for market-based economic initiatives that drive democratic reform. But for now, I'll leave you with her final word and advice to donors who want to do more to support the foundations of democracy rather than be too
1: out and proud on promoting democracy itself. First up, invest in independent civic spaces that allow for debates to occur but support it from within. Don't put your logos all over it. This will allow for people to feel it is a locally led agenda. Secondly, think outside the aid program box to foster a thriving economy. And finally, invest in enterprises and initiatives that catalyse an education revolution. A literate and educated population forms the basis for a thriving and strong democracy.
0: That's all from Serena in this episode of The Readout. Make sure you have a read of her essay in our publication of DEVELOP, where she expands on what you've heard here. It's available on our website and linked in the show notes. On the next episode of The Readout, I'm going to bring you in on a conversation I had with Professor John Blaxlin. He's a security and defence expert based here in Canberra, and he's calling on Australia to be much more empathetic to our neighbours.
1: It is in our interests for our neighbours to look to us in a well-disposed manner as their partner of choice. It is not in our interests for them to cynically see us as an exploiter of their problems.
0: The Readout is brought to you by the Development Intelligence Lab. The show is produced by Madeleine Flint with production support from Connie Aegis, Isabel Coleman and Rachel Mason-Nunn. The music is by Viljami Meto and it's hosted by me, Bridie Rice. Special thanks in this episode to Serena Sassingen. Make sure you head to devintelligencelab.com to read our essay series publication, Develop, on this topic featuring many of the people who you're going to meet in this show. Subscribe to The Readout wherever you get your podcasts, and you can get in touch with us by heading to devintelligencelab.com. We'd love to get your feedback.